You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 404, Revelation Q&A, part 5. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike. Still got some uh, questions on Revelation for you. You're not quite done yet. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll try to put a, another dent into it. Got two more episodes, and we got a jam-packed episode today. So, Mike, uh, unless you got anything you want to talk about, we, we, we might want to just jump in for the sake of time. Yeah, yeah, we should just. I don't. I don't really have any other update no um, as far okay. as chemo. No. Yeah. Status quo. I got you. All right. Well, let's do this for the sake of time to get into it. Uh, uh, Mike, our first question is going to be from Tim, and he's got you know two or three questions here, kind of back to back. And um, some of his questions are, you know, what is the relationship of the martyred souls under the altar to the one hundred and forty-four thousand? When in prophecy is this event taking place, and is the number one hundred and forty-four thousand to be understood literally? Well, you know, on the identification of the one hundred and forty-four thousand, uh, I'm more or less just going to refer to not really not the transcripts, but um, the book. Those of you who might recall uh, the the notes from this podcast, I have put into book form, and we are. We are uh, selling that uh, as sort of a commentary. So I'm going to read from that to answer this question, because we've actually been over this before uh, in in the series. Uh, I also have to add here, I don't really see a reason to care uh, who the 144,000 are, but I know people, for some reason, you know, get into that part of, of the discussion. So I'm, I'm just going to read where we were before. I, I, earlier in the podcast, I said something to this effect. Given the secure Old Testament context for Revelation 7, this writer, that is me, believes it makes more sense to have the 144,000 as Jews who are loyal to the Lamb. In other words, they're Jewish followers of Jesus. And so they're Christians. Okay, so we can't confuse Jew and Christian here. It's the same thing if we're talking about those who are, who are the true seed of Abraham, i.e. believers in Jesus. They'd be Christians too. So they're Jewish followers of Jesus, and so they're Christians, but should, they should not be thought of as Gentile Christians who are to be regarded only as spiritual Israelites. They are Jewish followers of Jesus. And that's the view I take. Everything about Revelation 7, 1 through 8, where we first encounter the 144,000, is Jewish and Old Testament in context. You have a census, you have tribes. You have the attachment to Ezekiel's ceiling in Ezekiel 9. The subsequent mention of the 144,000 in Revelation 14 is consistent with that. And I doubt that there is an intended contrast between the 144,000 in Revelation 7 versus the 144,000 in Revelation 14. I think they're the same. Some argue the two groups are different, asserting that the 144,000 in Revelation 14 cannot be Jews, but I think that makes little sense. The only possible basis for such a conclusion is that the 144,000 in Revelation 14 aren't listed in their tribes. But my question is, why would John need to provide the list twice? 
particularly when the critical number, 144,000, easily links the two passages. So many ethnic Jews follow the Lamb. They follow Christ in the New Testament. I think that's what's going on here. Their status as Jesus' followers did not mean they were no longer regarded as ethnic Jews. That's what they were, ethnically. Such an objection seems to confuse a spiritual label, Christian, with an ethnic one, Jew. You can be a Jew and a Christian at the same time. You're just a Jewish follower of Jesus, and I think that's that's where the 144,000 are. I, I also, as part of the, the question, we get into this great tribulation language. Uh, I think it's worth reminding people that there's only one secure place in the Old Testament from which the great tribulation language derives. And that, again, is going to be in Daniel. So earlier in the podcast, I'm going to read again from the book that, that we've produced for this. When we were in Revelation 7.13, you know, we read the text. The text says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the phrase great tribulation does have an Old Testament context. And importantly, this context is one of the few items in the book in which virtually all biblical scholars agree. There aren't many of these, but this is one of them. However, that consensus does not align with the considerable body of popular prophecy teaching. So basically, you have a situation here. What's the Great Tribulation where scholars are going to answer with a a very unified voice? Oh, that's that thing that comes from Daniel, which I'll talk about in a moment. Whereas popular prophecy wants to connect this with the the 70th week, and they want to put it in timelines and eschatological systems, and in some cases even chop it up into two periods. You know, we don't get any of that from from the Old Testament. And what we do get from the Old Testament places the Great Tribulation at a different place in the quote-unquote prophetic uh, timeline that a lot of Christians, you know, want it. And they don't they don't like where it winds up if you just go with the Old Testament. But anyway, the, the you know, popular Christianity assumes the Great Tribulation is another name for the 70th week of Daniel. So Daniel 9, 24 through 27 specifically. The problem is the text doesn't actually say that. So the popular conception has significant obstacles to overcome when it comes to just going with the biblical data. First, for example, the concept of a seven-year tribulation never appears in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. The closest you even come to that is the vocabulary of tribulation in Daniel 9.25, where we have this trouble. But that trouble is assigned to the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. It is not the 70th week. So you don't have any proof that this trouble time is a seven-year period in Daniel 9. Secondly, the vocabulary for tribulation never occurs anywhere in the Bible, anywhere, Old or New Testament with the term for week or seven juxtaposed with the term tribulation. Okay, you know, I'm not saying there's no such thing as a seven-year tribulation. That might be the way things work out, but I can say there's no Bible verse that says it, because there isn't. So we need to remember that too. Now, what we do have is we have Daniel 12.1. Okay, 
If we look at Revelation 7, 13 and 14, just listen to it. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The description here contains several elements. The great tribulation is associated with the end of days. And you're going to find it there in Matthew 24, 41 as well. Because the period is ending. This great tribulation period is ending. And and its result is the glorification of believers. That is, believers or martyrs on behalf of the Lamb who have gone through whatever this great tribulation is. They've received white robes. Their faith in the Lamb has saved them. Lastly, if the great tribulation is at a close, then the great white throne judgment and verdict of the book of life should logically ensue from that point on, which is indeed the case. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8, Revelation 20.12, and Revelation 20.15. And now if you look at Daniel 12.1, it kind of clicks. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, the, that's the end of Daniel 12. One, the book, book of life, we know when that judgment scene happens in the book of Revelation. And preceding that is when you get the, the talk of the martyrs, you know, who've emerged from the great tribulation. So the, these are the same elements. Daniel 12.1 describes an end-of-days tribulation. There's no number assigned to it in Daniel 12.1. There's no number of years. It is rightly considered a correlate to the great tribulation of Revelation because of the way Daniel describes it. Quote, Daniel again, that this time of trouble will be such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Unquote. This description is, in fact, what leads scholars to link Daniel 12.1 to another Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, which is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Further, the righteous, the people of God, are delivered, those whose names are found written in the book of life, and so on and so forth. So, again, if, if you want to look at it biblically, you know, you want to you want to get John's theology. You want you want to see where it hooks into the Old Testament, which is the purpose of the whole series that we just did. Then you're going to come out with a little bit of a of a different take on things. You're, at least I would hope you would be hesitant to say things that the text never actually says, such as there is a there is a coming seven year great tribulation. We don't know that. We know that there is a coming great tribulation at the end of which. It's going, to, it's going to close out, you know, this period of persecution, this, this horrific tribulation. You know, we're going to transition from that to the glorification of believers. So logically, it's at the end of the day of the Lord, because then we get the final judgment. And, you know, the, the righteous are vindicated, including the, the, you know, the martyrs that are described in the book of Revelation. So we, we get the same flow the same chronological flow that we get from the Old Testament, but the Old Testament doesn't actually insert these numbers. Those are sort of inserted in, in like, well, in a dispensational system that, that's very common. It's less common in other systems. But there's no verse that actually does that. And so that's going to affect how you think about the, the, the tribulation and everything associated with it. 
So again, that, that that's how I approached it. That's how we, you know, we did it for the sake of the podcast. I would say, what can we know about the Great Tribulation? It's connected to Daniel twelve one and Jeremiah thirty. It's linked to Daniel twenty or Matthew twenty four twenty one. It's a time that precedes the final judgment, which of course is associated also with the return of Jesus, and it involves persecution. That's about all you can say. Those points are the secure ones. Going beyond that, you're in the area of speculation. There's no timing given for it. So where does it fit on the timeline? There is no timeline. There's no specific timeline. There's a general flow of events, but that's about all. B and Ollie in Thornton, Colorado, have a question on hell. Sheol from episode 363. I was surprised that Dr. Heiser didn't go to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. According to that story, Sheol, where the wicked go, and the bosom of Abraham, where the righteous went at the time, are two separate compartments. Paradise? When Jesus died and was resurrected, it says he led captivity captive, Ephesians 4.8. Does that mean those people in Matthew 27, 52 through 53, were those taken captive with him, the ones that came up out of the grave and walked around? Then Matthew 27, 52 through 53, and the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What happened to all these people? Do you think they were taken up with them? There, there's a lot of conflation going on here um, in the question. First of all, we're not going to entertain Matthew 27 here. That, does, that needs a full episode. In fact, that, that's such a vast topic, it might take us two episodes to get through that. Uh, I can say, though, that the, what happens in Matthew 27 has nothing to do with Ephesians 4.8, leading captivity captive. And that doesn't have anything uh, to do with emptying hell of believers. So that's why I say there's a lot of conflation of ideas here that, that, that don't really work. Now, for Ephesians 4.8, I would refer uh, B and Ali to Unseen Realm, pages 292 to 295 for that. Uh, taking captivity captive is is not a it's not a release of the righteous it's the conquest of the un, of the ungodly specifically supernatural forces um so it's it's the opposite of what mostly is popularly taught and i spend a good good amount of space in unseen realm talking about that so again it has nothing to do with you know release of the righteous the, the two-compartment thing, we need to stop thinking about the, the spiritual world as having compartments or apartments or, or anything like that. It is a spiritual world. Spiritual world is the counterpart to the physical world. In the physical world, there are different places because the physical world, you can talk about having place and space, latitude and longitude, because it's the world of the embodied. So that world has places, it has neighborhoods, it has places where good people live, the righteous, it has the church living in it, and it has the ungodly, the, those who are lost living in it. It's the world. The spiritual world is the same thing, it's just a counterpart, but on a spiritual scale. In the spiritual world, there are supernatural beings loyal to God. There's God. God lives in the spiritual world. But the spiritual world is also the, the realm of the disembodied. So the dead are there too. 
and the dead, some of them are destined to to being with the Lord. You know, and again, I'm a believer that Paul actually knew what he was talking about when he said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I'm going to take Paul there. I'll side with him. I don't believe in soul sleep or anything like that. Um, so there's there's that part of the spiritual world where the righteous, you know, get to be with the Lord, and then there there are those who do not, you know, occupy space. They do not enjoy the Lord's presence. All these things are in the in the, the quote unquote spiritual world. You know, I, I I myself, you know, we're we're all forced to use some kind of language of place when we talk about the spiritual world because we we don't know how to talk about a placeless place. We don't know how to talk about a place that doesn't have latitude and longitude, doesn't have height or depth or width or breadth. That's what the spiritual world is. So we are forced to use the language of physicality, the language of spatial existence. And so were the biblical writers. They're humans too. They don't know what it's like to be a spiritual being because they're not. They're embodied. So this language we get in Scripture should be taken with with that sort of grain of salt. What I mean by that is not, not to say that it isn't true, it is, but realize that the language that's being used doesn't really fit. And it can't fit, but it's the best we've got. So, no, if, if we were to, to visit the spiritual world you know, today, we, we wouldn't like get road signs that say, this way to paradise, this way to Sheol, or you know, this way to, you know, they don't, we have to think on those terms so that we we can even try to understand another place that isn't this place. <laughs> you know? It's just we're, we're trapped by by the by the limitations of our vocabulary. But the reality is, the spiritual world is the world of the disembodied. It doesn't have the kind of physicality like we're used to. It has something, you know. We we, we get some sort of body, but it's not one that conforms to the laws of physics as we know it. If it's if it's a body like the Lord's, and that's what Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen. You know, the Lord's had un, Lord's body and resu- the resurrection state had unusual ca- capacities. It didn't have blood for one thing. He could appear in rooms that were locked, and, you know, no windows and doors open. That's a totally different existence. But but to even talk about that, we have to use the language of embodiment. We don't have anything better. So I think we need to get away from the literalization uh, of the, this kind of terminology, but also we need to acknowledge that we're kind of forced to use this language because our language is limited and just leave it there. Because that's about the best we can do. So the the people, back to the Matthew 27, they're not, that has nothing to do with Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 4 has nothing to do with Luke 16 as far as, you know, releasing the righteous goes. That's something totally different. And Ephesians 4, 8 goes in a different direction uh, than that. Heather has her next question. In episode 376, Dr. Heiser quotes Bill, when he talks about the prophets polluting Israel in idolatry, and so the punishment of Jeremiah 9, 15, bitter food and poisonous water is suited to the crime. My question is, could this also be a similar idea looking back even further to Exodus thirty-two twenty, when Moses burns the golden calf, grinds it into powder, and mixes it with water and makes the sons of Israel, Israel drink it? Yeah, there, there's some terminology used here that you're going to find in other passages too. I, I think that 
the idea of idolatry being a pollution to the land is legit because it is spoken of in those terms. And so there's there's some sort of conceptual link between that idea and what the, the passages that are that are raised in the question. But I don't see any relationship to the drinking of the powdery mix per se. In Jeremiah, the concoction is either something made from a plant or serpent's venom. And they're not the same elements in view in the Exodus judgment. So let me let me just go to Jeremiah 9.15 so I can I'll read this passage just so that you don't have to sort of look it up yourself. The Jeremiah 9.15 says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. So you, you have some terminology here in this passage, like bitter food is la'ana, and then this poisonous water, uh, poisonous water to drink. That language in Hebrew doesn't appear in the earlier Exodus passage. The Exodus passage that uh, the question alludes to about grinding up the idol and making the people drink from it. There, the, the verbiage there is different. So I don't see a direct connection between the two. But I do see a, a connection between idolatry generally and, and quote-unquote polluting the land. And that's the, more, that's the more general point. You know, idolatry is cast as something that pollutes the, the land of promise itself. Um, and the reason is idolatry is cast as spiritual adultery. And adultery was one of the sins that profaned the land morally. So that's how you get this, this connection with pollution, spiritual pollution, spiritual idolatry, profaning the land. That, that's how you tie all these, all these points together. And for, you know, for passages, you could go to a place like 2 Chronicles 36, 14, or Jeremiah 3, 1, really Jeremiah 3, 1 through 9. Uh, you could go to Deuteronomy 28's curses, which revolve around unfaithfulness and idolatry, again, using the, the adultery metaphor. The land becomes polluted as a punishment, and the land itself spits out or expels the Israelites. Now, all of that makes sense in, in when you get to the metaphor in the book of Revelation of the whore of Babylon, there's a reason why the the beast system is thought of in, in terms of a whore, a prostitute. And it goes back to this, this notion of idolatry being spiritual adultery. So all these ideas are connected, but I don't I don't see a specific connection back to the Exodus passage. Our next question comes from Dana. I just finished listening to Revelation 7, part 2, and I think maybe Mike missed the most important weird thing concerning the 144,000. The idea implication that loss of virginity equals defilement in Revelation 14.4. It might make one temporarily unclean, but not defiled. I think the Old Testament is pretty strong in promoting the concept that married sex is a good thing. That makes me question... What related to promiscuity would equal defilement in the Old Testament? Idolatry? Only idolatry imagery is forged together repeatedly with illicit sex metaphors and the concept of defiled before (laughs) Yahweh. So was John maybe saying that the 144,000 Christians who are of Jewish heritage are ones who are spiritually virtuous, having never defiled themselves in the worship of gods other than Yahweh? And doesn't the concept of undefiled spirituality 
spiritually link nicely into the idea of first fruits to God and the Lamb, which immediately follows. I did not find the various other virgin explanations to dovetail very well into the first fruits imagery. Yeah, well, first I would have to say we, you know, I did mention where where commentators typically want to go to, you know, at the beginning of, of this whole issue is they want to go to the prohibition of Israelite soldiers from engaging in sex before battle. And then, and then there's also the, the, the priests, you know, periodically are supposed to do this too in preparation for battle. And, and we noted in the, in the episode that it doesn't really quite work because it's a temporary thing. So it's very obvious, as as Dana points out, that the the Bible has a high view of of sex, you know, within marriage. So, you know, that ha- that really has nothing to do, you know, with this. But that's where most of the people start with these these temporary prohibitions. And the reason they go there is because of the counting, which you, is very obvious in Revelation seven with one hundred forty four thousand. The only place where you get a comment about sexual abstinence. We'll, we'll use some some broad wording here, but sexual abstinence with counting is back in these warfare passages in the book of Numbers. But the problem is, is, is it's not really, you know, I, I, I would agree that the temporary nature of it in the Old Testament is not a good fit. And again, when we were quoting Bauckham and others uh, in, in regard to that, I, I, I know I, I let that slip, not really slip. But I, I said it because I agree. I don't think it's a good match. And then if you remember the episode, we, we launched off into the, the other possibility that had to do with the priestly garb. So if you, t- if you look at the priestly garb, and then you're, you're talking about being undefiled with a woman. We, we referenced an article there, a specific article that, that wonders if the 144,000 shouldn't be linked to the Watcher story. Are they are they an intentional counterpart? Are the 144,000, you know, good priests, those who who occupy sacred space and represent God, who have not defiled themselves with women? Is that comment deliberately aimed at making the 144,000 a group that is distinct from from the Watchers, from the the, the sin sinning supernatural beings of Genesis six, who are of course in prison, but they are they are representative of the chaos system. So is is that the whole point, to draw a distinction between those who are following Yahweh and those who are sort of in the same stead, painted with the same brush as the, as the sinful watchers of the Genesis 6 story? So we got into that a little bit. There, there are some things to commend that, and it doesn't have the specific weakness uh, that Dana points out for this other view. So I I think I'm I'm of the opinion I'm I'm not sold on it yet, but I think there's there there could very well be something to that um, because there's a lot of other Enochian stuff going on in the Book of Revelation too, and so you know this is a possibility for me. So I would say back to the part of the question is John maybe saying the 144,000 Christians who are of Jewish heritage are spiritually virtuous? Is that the point? They haven't worshipped other gods. Well, that would certainly be part of it. So so he could be saying that. I don't know that it, that it really solves or addresses completely um, the sexual language, although you know abstinence from spiritual adultery can fit that. I think that that, that that's probably 
a good thing to include in your toolbox, you know, when you when you're looking at Revelation seven and Revelation fourteen, uh, when it comes to one hundred forty four thousand. But I don't, I'm not persuaded that it would be a, a comprehensive way of looking at it. I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the door open still to the to the watcher idea, and you know, there may be something to that. Frank in Chicago asks. We understand that the plagues Moses brought attention to were a direct attack on the gods of Egypt. With that in consideration, what can we glean from the plagues that are listed in the book of Revelation? Do these plagues in part or entirety seem to be focused on a particular ancient religion or its gods? Which gods should these individual plagues bring to mind? Yeah, I I don't think the context of of John, i.e. the context of Revelation, is Egypt. So I don't think the Egyptian gods are in view. Uh, his context is Rome, which of course he connects back to Babylon primarily as the as the the chaos touchpoint. But he also points to Egypt, who, who before Babylon was again the the chaos touchpoint. It's it's that that representation, that representative group, if you will, that is opposing the people of God and therefore the plan of God at any particular point. Egypt early on plays that role. And then later on, it's going to be Babylon. And John dips into both wells, but his own context is not going to be specifically the gods of Egypt. I I think, you know, just generally, what you have is you have aligning yourself with any deity, any anyone other than Jesus is in view. But if if you had specific deities in view, then either a deity or deities that would be in question would have would have been one worshipped in Asia Minor, because the book of Revelation is written to those churches in Asia Minor. And so you might have a deity like Zeus or Hecate or Artemis in view, but I, I tend to look at it more generally than that. Even though Zeus gets gets a few punches in the nose in the book of Revelation, especially early on. Uh, in chapter one, verse four, um, and Artemis does as well. I mean, there, there are those occasions, but I tend to think that that the the book, more broadly speaking, is not aimed at a specific pantheon, but you know, worshiping any deity, aligning yourself with anyone other than than the Lord, is the point. Brad asks: Was the apocalyptic nature, genre nature of Revelation, confusing to the original listeners, or did they understand the symbology? Yeah, I would say literate Israelites, and and there are just like today, there are people who are more literate. They they read more than other people. So if you're in the reading class, the, those who have access to literature and actually you know read it, the the better educated class, they're certainly going to be familiar with the symbology in the Book of Revelation and generally apocalyptic symbology because it's it occurs so frequently elsewhere. You have lots of Second Temple texts that have apocalyptic imagery. Uh, you know, the, the two biggest examples would be First Enoch and Jubilees. But you know there are a number of Dead Sea Scrolls that are either independent compositions or fragments of other books that would would fit into the apocalyptic genre. So if you were a reader, you're you're going to be familiar with this. You know if you're not, I, I think some of the what I what I would want to call upper tier symbols, something like Leviathan, is so ubiquitous 
in the ancient world that I'm sure they would have gotten that one. I don't know if they'd get the, the nuancing of a lot of other things, but this is also why, why it's wise for the Lord and wise for John to connect what he's saying back to the Old Testament, because, you know, even if you're, you're not well-read, if you go to synagogue or if you go to a church, you're going to be being taught out of your Septuagint. You're going to, you, you know, you're going to pick up some of these things uh, if that source material is linked to what John is saying in this letter that you're hearing about, you know, way back in the first century church. So that's going to help with with having some touch points of explanation. But if you were illiterate, uh, somebody who's who's fairly well read in the ancient world, you're going to have run into these things in a lot of places. Mike from Santee, California, has a question about Revelation 7, 4 through 8. The listing of the 12 tribes that make up the 144,000, Dr. Heiser mentioned that the order in which the tribes are listed is unique but he did not elaborate. Is there significance to the order? The ancient Christian commentary on scripture quotes two sources that are ascribed significance to the order drawing on Philo's on dreams, or Genesis 49, 1-28. Do these commentaries have a point, or are they reading too much into it? I think they're reading too much into it, because I, I personally don't think there's any meaning to be discerned from the order, because the order is never the same anywhere else. I mean, if you go to the Old Testament, there is no one order there. There's, you know, half a dozen different ways that the tribes get listed. So I don't know why this one departure would have some specific meaning as opposed to all the other ones in the Old Testament. It, you know, it seems that this is the way we do it. We, we, we wing it every time we get to the tribes, it seems. So there's, there's a lot of vari- variation here. If it was the only place that varied, Let's say that in the Old Testament, all of the listings were always the same. There was uniformity, and they were all unanimous except for this one. Then there's probably something going on. But this one's like the other ones. They, you know, there's it, it appears somewhat random. Now, there's one scholar I know of, and and the I didn't even really bring it up in, during the episode because the article's so dense, and honestly, I it, it really it feels very contrived to me. Um, but I, I have one article, but the guy's last name, I believe, this is the Manicam article, that r- tries to relate the 666 to the order of tribes in Revelation 7. And his argument is something, his argument is actually quite hard to follow, and it's very, it's dense and, and again, convoluted, but I would, I, I would even, I feel like a word like contrived is not too harsh for it. Um, and honestly, it would require visuals as well. You'd have to see the the, the alignments in, in all the different ones. What he tries to do is he tries to associate certain slots in the order as being favorable or unfavorable, spiritually speaking. Like they're associated with tribal failures. Like if you're in this one specific slot, well, everybody that's in this specific slot, there's there's even though there's different tribes that occupy this slot, it's a it's it's a tribe that had some sort of spiritual or moral failure in the Old Testament, and then then he also wants to take that into the lists of the apostles, to try to see that that the, the juggling of Judas has something to do with the bad slot of the genealogies, and then connecting both of those thoughts to the six six six. Look, when I say it's it's dense and convoluted, that that's an understatement. 
and there's no way to to do this in audio to even take anybody through it and i to me it's it's a system in search of a text you know that, that that's that's just the feel i have for it but it's the only one i've ever come across that tries to argue something uh is related to 666 by virtue of the of the the missing or the the, the order of presentation here for the 144,000 um so there 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 you have it i mean it <laughs> There's really nothing to be gained here, even the omission of Dan, which is interesting. That you know the Antichrist is from Dan. Well, Dan's not the only one omitted. If you want to be really technical about it, you know Joseph. You have, you have Ephraim. You don't have Ephraim and Manasseh. You've got one of them, and Joseph is excluded. So, again, I, I think I think this sort of speculation is really wishful thinking to try to crack a nut. That has resisted cracking. Um, I just don't. I don't. I don't see much merit to it. Adele from Emmett, Idaho, asks: Is it possible that the seals have been being opened ever since Jesus ascended to the throne? That the seventh seal will be opened as the wrath of God begins, and that the trumpets and bowls together are describing God's wrath upon the earth. Well, there there are those systems that take that view. So if you're asking, is it possible? Sure. It goes along with a lot of this stuff happening in the present era, the present church age. And then we're we're waiting for this, the seventh, which would be the day of the Lord. You know, this, this final capstone, cataclysmic, great trouble, tribulation thing. Um, so sure, it, it, it's possible. Again, some, some eschatological systems have taken just the angle that you just described there in that one sentence. So, I mean, that's about, that's about all I can say about it. I'm not, I'm not really married to systems and don't, don't like any of them, you know, in, enough to adopt any of them, but to, to be fair to the question, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's a legitimate angle that you could pursue and find uh, writers and commentators that have taken it uh, before you and, and enjoy it, be warmed and filled by that. <laughs> you know, if, if, if the if the system, you know, you know, gives you uh, a lot of comfort or or satisfies most of your questions, well, it could, you know, good. I'm just saying that there's no system that's going to answer all the questions, and they all know that. It's, it's this isn't secret information. It's just that sometimes. Some of the some of the systems get so they get so uh, married. People get so married to the system they almost conflate it with believing the Bible in any regard, which goes way too far and just is is uncalled for. Bobby asks, could the Lord's Day in Revelation one ten simply refer to the great and terrible day of the Lord and not the twenty four hour day, which Christ rose when the early church celebrated it? Well, I, I would say no. I don't think that this day is the the eschatological day of the Lord, because the the day of the Lord is actually a time period of judgment. It's not a single twenty four hour day. There's a lot of things going on uh, on the day of the Lord that you know, it's never limited to twenty four hours. Um, it's, it's a day, as in a time, an era, which is again bigger than than one you know solar day. That something's going to happen. There's also no textual reason to limit uh, the language back in Revelation one to you know the Lord's day to being a single day. And 
that, you know, on in his commentary notes, he's quoting somebody named Rordorf, a specific study on, on the Sunday question, you know, Sunday, the Sabbath and, you know, early Christian worship on a Sunday. And he points out that, that the phrase used in Revelation 1.10, the Kyriake Hemera, on the Lord's Day, okay, is not synonymous. It's not a synonym for Hemera to Koryu, that's the day of the Lord. Since the latter phrase traditionally referred to the eschatological day of the Lord. So what that means in English is that the wording in Revelation 1.10 about John being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, in Greek, that is not the same Greek phrase as is used everywhere else when it's clear the day, you know, the eschatological day of the Lord is being talked about. That's going to be a different Greek phrase. So I would I would say on the basis of that that that's that's not what we're dealing with in regard to this language early in the book of Revelation. Thomas wondered if Jesus was dead in the abyss, would that not mean Satan would be dead as well? I just think of the Edenic prophecy, both the woman's seed and the serpent would receive a deadly blow. This is my first question. Does Satan being in the abyss mean he is dead? The second point is about the kind of death that the gods, sons of God, were destined to have. Psalm 82, 7 says they should die like mere mortals. Could this possibly refer to Revelation 12 and the ouster of Satan and his angels from heaven to earth? So this, this is a good example of why let me put it this way. Satan exists, therefore he is not dead. If we define death as ceasing to exist. So here we are back to how do we define death? And if we want to find death as separation from God, well, okay, Satan is separated from God. He's the Lord of the dead. He's down here doing his thing. But it's not like God can't be at those places either. You know, we, we we got into this a little bit when we were talking about how, how difficult it is to talk about an omniscient being, God, and an, om, an omnipresent being, you know, the God of the Bible, and, and how these attributes work work their way into situations that would seem to limit them or, or require some sort of redefinition of them. For instance, if God is omnipresent, we can't exclude him from this place called the realm of the dead. But yet God isn't there because he is life. He is the source of life. He is life itself. And so he can't be present simultaneously with death. God as life is incompatible with death. So you get into these bigger conceptual questions of how do we even talk about life and death and God's relationship to it? And, and how do we define death as the cessation of existence? Well, certainly in, Satan exists. And, he, and he's going to exist for a long time until the day of the Lord. So he's not dead, but he is nevertheless uh, the primary citizen, if you will, of the realm of the dead. So we, we need to adjust the way we think about death and, and the dead and so on and so forth. So that's one thing. The other thing we have to consider is that Satan doesn't have a mortal lifespan. In other words, Satan isn't aging. Like he doesn't have a body that's going to deteriorate and then he's going to die at some point because he gets old. No supernatural being has a mortal, determinate lifespan. They are disembodied spiritual beings. 
And so, of course, is Satan. However, Satan is still a created and and thus contingent being. A contingent being is, is a being that owes its existence on something else or someone else, some other being. Satan only exists now because God wills it. Okay, if God wanted to destroy Satan right now, he could very well do that. So, you know, we're getting into theodicy again, which we're not going to rabbit trail here on that. But this, this is another, another issue that has to be thought about in relationship to this question. We have a being here that doesn't have a determinate lifespan. He's not going to get old and die. He's not going to be harmed. You know, he's not going to commit some stupid accident and then he's going to kill himself. No, his lifespan is indefinite, contingent only upon the, the, the pleasure of God. When God decides it's time for him to cease to exist, then that's what's going to happen. And that's what does happen in the, at the end of the book of Revelation. So the fact that there is a realm of the dead and that Satan occupies it doesn't mean that he's dead in, in terms of him obviously ceasing to exist. It, you know, that those two things are completely incompatible. And so we have to think about the whole question in, in a different way. I think there was a second part to the question. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, his second part was uh, about uh, Psalm 82.7 saying they could die like mere mortals. Could this possibly refer to Revelation 12 and Satan and his angels from heaven to earth? Yeah, I would say no. Satan was ousted before Revelation 12, and Revelation 12's context is the birth of the Christ child. Again, I think right around verse 6, you know, we that, that's that's explicitly clear. So there's a chronological mismatch there that's pretty obvious if if you if you read revelation 12 and you and your mind latches on to the connection with the birth of the christ child other than that we also have to say we don't even know if those cast down the stars that are cast down early in revelation 12 we don't even know if they're bad guys if the passage is dependent on daniel 8:11 which i think seems pretty clear then they're not they're not bad guys they are defeated good guys they're they're not moral defectors. They haven't fallen with Satan. Okay, they've been defeated in the defense of, you know, God. It's it's spiritual warfare. It's a description of spiritual warfare with wins and losses. So we don't even know if the stars early in Revelation 12 are bad guys. I would say they're not. Uh, we also don't know for sure. I mean, we can we can kind of guess that there may be some relationship between these stars and later on when, when, when we do get the devil and his angels mentioned. But that's actually not, you know, not really clear. Why would we conclude that the devil's angels are these stars earlier in Revelation 12 when, if you go back to Daniel 11, which that part of Revelation 12 is based on, they're not bad guys. We don't have a rebellion there. We have a defeat. You know, at the at the hands of the little horn, you know, so to speak. So that there's there's a lot that people I think assume is going on in Revelation 12 that either isn't, or that has a certain amount of ambiguity to it. And I think we need to to pay more attention to that that fact that it, that there there are things going on here that that mar this neat picture of the you know the the devil falling with a third of the angels and you know sometime in the in the primeval past you you're, you're just really not getting much help from revelation 12 on that if you read it closely 
and look and see what parts of the book of Daniel it plays off. Okay, our last question is from Joe. Where does the prophecy in Isaiah 2520 fit in the grander eschatological timeline? It talks about extremely long lifespans, but still seems to expect that people will still die. Does this have any implications for what we should expect in the new earth? Meaning, will people live for extremely long times in the new earth, but still expect to die at some point? Or is this talking about something completely different than the world as it will be after the events in Revelation? Yeah, we we actually hit this question in the second Q&A that we did in this series. Uh, the, it was asked by someone named Dean. Again, the very same thing about Isaiah 65. And I made a comment about not over-literalizing the descriptions, that it's just the writers are trying to do the best they can to describe a time and a life that is completely opposite to the one we know. So I would say go back and, and listen to the uh, the answer in in the second Q&A, the question by Dean. It's it's kind of it's kind of in the middle of the uh, Q&A episode there. All right, Mike, just like that, uh, five down, one to go. Lots one to go. Questions. Yeah. yeah. We appreciate everybody that sent in their questions. And uh, Mike, hopefully everybody's getting ready for Christmas because next week it's Christmas time. Yeah. We have some things people should get for Christmas. Absolutely. Go to your last, your last Christmas shopping. That's right. You want to mention those two books again, Mike? Yeah, we've got the Prayer Digest, which is a collection of scriptural prayers in uh, the original language. You get the original language prayer. You get a, a brief translation and then a transliteration of pronunciation. Like, how, how would you pray this in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic? So it's just a short little book. You know, people can use that in their own uh, their own prayer time, their own devotional time. And the other one is a much bigger book that is specifically the notes that we used for this whole series in the book of Revelation. So it's the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, you know, notes from the Naked Bible podcast. It is not, it's nowhere near the same as the transcripts. The transcripts, if you've ever used one and looked at one, and I hope you have because they're very useful. But they have timestamps, and Tran, Tran and I are in there talking about fantasy football. <laughs> you know, everything is transcribed, so the, all of our rabbit trails and whatnot—it's it's a little little more chaotic than uh, putting it in book form. So I took all the notes and put them into something that, that looks more like a traditional book with footnotes. So you really you really ought to avail yourself of both of those. And then, of course, the Advent book—if you, know, if you don't have it, you can still get it, use it next year. Mike, we don't write a fantasy football book, do we? I mean, do you no, think we, we sell more than five copies of that? Maybe. I think that, I think that ship has been <laughs> that ship has sailed. Yeah. All right, then. Sounds good. Yeah. We appreciate everybody sending in their questions. Appreciate Mike answering our questions next week. Last Q and A on Revelation. It'll be the final, 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 final chapter of the podcast yep. on Revelation. So, uh, and what better day for it to come on Christmas? All right, Mike. Well, with that, I want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.